Kabbalah and the Psychology of the Soul, taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky. You know, Hasidim used to get together and used to fabring. And the fabring, and when you have a friend who really cares about you and loves you, and and after a little l'chaim, and you know that he's coming from a good place, and then he gives a little criticism. It's like a doctor give, administering a stinging, stinging shot. It stings, but it's a medicine, it's a shot. You have to sterilize the wound before, you have to make sure that there's no ego, there's no arrogance, there's no, it's done in a loving way, it's coming from the best place, it's coming from your best friend, loves you unconditionally. He's not trying to harm you or to sting you or to criticize you just to make you feel bad. But he's giving you a little medicine because you really, you're really slacking off and you're really losing it. You're really slippering off. It's slippery. It's a slippery slope, and you're really falling. You don't even realize. So, you know, sometimes it's hard for us to stop ourselves. We're we're, we're sliding and we don't even realize. And um, so that's the best thing. If a person has a best friend, that can tell him honestly. And the truth is, society is not is not. Society today is not anyone's best friend. Society today is everyone's worst enemy. Because all society does to everyone is just slap them in the back and tell them you're wonderful and you're great and everything you do is wonderful and you can be the biggest bum and the biggest low life and you can live a lifestyle that's like the, the worst lifestyle on earth. Something you should be ashamed of, nothing to be proud of. And society will slap you in the back and say, no, it's wonderful, everything you do is wonderful, you can't do anything wrong and you have a right to be whatever you want to be. You're not being the person's friend. You know, if, if society was honest, they would look the person in the eye and say, listen, wake up, come on, you're wasting your life. You're wasting your energy. What, what are you doing with your life? Instead of living a content life, a meaningful life, purposeful life, a substantial life, a wholesome life, Look, look what you've become. So it comes from indifference. In, in you don't care about anyone. Basically, I couldn't care less about you. As long as you don't touch me, as long as you don't bother me, knock your head against the wall, kill yourself, self-destruct, what do I care? As long as you don't hurt anyone, do whatever you please. It's none of my business. But if you really care about someone, and you see them falling, and you see them sinking, and you see them sinking in a, in a sinkhole, in quicksand, spiritually sinking, you have to wake them up. And sometimes it means administering a stinging shot. But it has to be done in a loving way, in a loving context. And that wakes us up. But it's better, it's better, so much better to do it to yourself. We should not wait till uh, Hashem wakes us up, till God wakes us up. Because he truly, boy does he know how to wake us up. And he knows how to remind us. When we go so far away from our true selves, our real selves. We become so drunk in materialism. And we stop caring. And our heart becomes clogged. We become indifferent. Become complacent. And he sobers us up. And reminds us of, you know, and then, and then the neshama starts feeling again. You know, when your heart is crushed, suddenly you start feeling again. And it reminds you of your innocence and your youth and your innocence. And it brings you back to your good, natural, wholesome self, your real self, your divine self, your godly self. But we should be wise. Why wait till God wakes us up? Let's wake ourselves up. 
the, the rabbis are giving us good advice. Yell at yourself. It's much better. Much easier. <laughs> it's cleaner. It's, it's... Just wake yourself up. The natural soul, the ego soul, is not so, it's not so innocent. Because it's, it's actually a very aggressively covers up in the truth. And it hides in the truth. The truth of godliness. That the world is pulsating, the world is vibrating, the world is alive, the world is godly, the very essence and substance of the world is godly. Nothing changed, just like God was alone before he created the world. Godliness permeates all of reality, everything is really godly. The world is a godly world. We are essentially in our very core godly beings. And everyone around us is really, our essence is godly. But the natural soul, the animal soul, completely covers up in this truth. The animal soul... You don't sense godliness, you don't feel godliness. And it, it covers up on godliness, and it covers up on, on, on our true core and essence. Because when you're connected with godliness, you realize that you are being recreated each and every moment. So your emotions are also being recreated each and every moment. So you are dynamic, you don't feel stuck, you don't feel, you feel alive, you feel vibrant. You feel constant movement and change and growth. But when the more egotistical a person becomes, the more rigid you become. The more your emotions, the more rigid, rigid you become, inflexible and rigid, and the heart shuts down, and you stop feeling any feelings of compassion, any feelings of love, any feelings of mercy, any feelings of kindness, of goodness, sensitivity, and you become completely disconnected. So it's not so innocent. Oh, I'm just following my natural self. It feels so natural. It's the antithesis of the truth. It actively opposes the real, the real truth. Because it paints, a very, it paints a very false picture of reality. A very distorted picture of reality. When a person becomes arrogant and disconnected, you, just, you become disconnected from, from reality. The truth is that, that, that uh, Hashem is creating the world each and every moment. Even the klipa, the forces of darkness, have no doubt in the reality of God. Even while they're trying to convince you and, and throw cynicism and um, throw doubt in your mind and deny the faith in God, you have to remember that the, the forces of darkness themselves have no doubt because they are also working for the king. And as the Zohar gives a beautiful analogy of the king who wants to test his son, the prince, and he hires the most beautiful prostitute in the kingdom to seduce the prince. Now, she has to do her, her job honestly. But in the heart of heart, she's begging and pleading with you, please, don't fall for me. You know, I'm just, I'm, this is just a test. This is just to test your wisdom and your strength of character. Don't, 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 uh, don't take this at face value. Don't be strong. So she's really hoping and pleading and begging that you shouldn't, shouldn't fall for it. But of course she has to do a job honestly and faithfully. She can't let on who she's really working for, what's really going on here. So she does everything, she puts out all the stops, and she does everything, everything that she can to all the wiles to seduce him. But really the truth is that deep down she also wants him to be strong. So even the klipa, the klipa is just doing its job. It's also an angel. The angel of death is also an angel of God. He's doing his job. The, uh, his job is to tempt us and to seduce us. Now this is the spiritual origin. The origin, the spiritual at the root, at the source, its intention is, is, is for the sake of heaven. But in, in actuality, on a conscious level, 
it actually, the, the, the temptation, the forces of temptation is actually very, very, very powerful. And um, it actually means to do us harm and actually is our enemy. The uh, angel of death and the angel of evil, its source, it means its intention is for the sake of heaven. It has a godly intention. It's working for the same one that we're working for. Because it's all a divine intent. This test our character, test our wisdom. But by the time it translates, and by the time it reaches us on a conscious level, we have an enemy in our hand. An enemy that really is trying to hurt us and to harm us. It's not our good friend. When the ego tries to seduce us and tries to get us to indulge, and tries, this is not our friend. Yes, you want to have fun, you want to have a good time. It appears to be your friend. But the truth is it's not your friend. It does not have your interest at heart. Because he knows that it's a dead end. And first, he, first you uh, indulge, but at the end it, it's a dead end, it's a one-way street to misery. It does not lead to happiness, does not lead to wholesomeness. Um, on the contrary, it, it alienates you, it takes you away from, from, it robs you of the possibility of happiness, of true happiness. It robs your ability to be intimate. It robs your ability to experience real love, to love and to be loved. It really, it's really a, a one-way street, it's a path towards self-destruction. But at the time you don't see it, at the time it's very seductive. It's junk food, junk lifestyle, tastes delicious, it's good, enjoy it for the moment, and you don't realize that it's just a dead end. And, um, and that's as the Talmud puts it so eloquently. The evil incarnation, he becomes the accusing angel, he is the accusing angel, and he's the angel of death. It's all three wrapped in one. Because the seducer, the temptation, it's my best friend, he wants him to have a good time, why not? But you don't realize that, that's, that then he becomes the accusing angel because that creates all this negative energy that actually drags you down in a very negative direction and ultimately you become self-destructive, you become the angel of death. You become addicted and, and um, you just lose your balance and lose your mind and you just lose, your, lose everything that's, that's, uh, that's worth, worth preserving in your life. But you don't realize it at the time. So it appears to be your friend, but the truth is it's not your friend. So he's your enemy. And it's a real, it's a real test, a real challenge. And you, and you have to overcome it. But the truth is, at the root and at the source, the motivation behind, behind this ego, is really all for the good. The, the motivation is really a godly motivation. It believes in God. It's doing God's mission. That's God's work. It's also doing God's work in this world. Because God needed, needed us and wants us to have the freedom of choice. And by overcoming, by, oh, by subduing the arrogance, subduing the darkness, and by dealing fire with fire, and by putting the arrogance and the ego in its place, and allowing it to shrivel up, and pricking the balloon, and then we also have the same effect on, 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 the, on the cosmos, on the, in the macrocosm, on a global scale that the forces of darkness also shrivel up and the forces of good are strengthened. Every time we are able to overcome this negativity inside of us, we strengthen all the forces of good around the world. And the forces of darkness become a little weaker and uh, shrivel up. And that's the whole purpose. And if we remember this purpose, we remember that even, even, the, even the evil inclination also 
also believes in God. But God empowered it to throw doubts in our mind. To make us cynical and jaded. And to cover up in our faith. And our innocence. And our wholesome faith. And our complete faith. To cover up in the power of our faith. But the truth is, even while we're covering up in the power of the faith, the godly soul believes in God 100%. And even the animal ego soul also believes in God 100%. That's why it's possible to change 180 degrees. The moment your heart is shattered into a thousand pieces, suddenly you realize that your faith is intact, your faith is whole, you have complete faith, you, have, you never lost that innocence and that purity and that power of faith. It's there. It's there presently, intact and whole. And that cures a person of, of his arrogance. That cures a person of his apathy, of his indifference, of his complacency, of his lack of caring. And now the heart suddenly starts feeling again. You recapture that, that, that innocence, that love, that relationship you have with God, that excitement. And you can start living again. You can start changing again and growing and moving forward and serving God joyously and with energy and with excitement and uh, with passion and with life and vitality. So where does the other side get the strength to be able to stand up to the godly soul? Because everything receives its sustenance from holiness. So how does the, the klippa, how does it have the power to rise above and to obstruct the godly soul? So this is a special strength that Hashem gave, the darkness, the darkness appears to have a substance of its own, its appearance, it's a mirage, but it has the image of the mirage, and it appears to be strong and mighty and overwhelming, and that's why you look at the darkness all around us, and it appears to be overwhelming, and, and it appears to be so mighty and strong, and sometimes you wonder how can, where do we have the strength, a tiny little people, where do we have the strength, where does the godly spark have the strength to be able to overcome overcome this negativity. But the truth is that the godly spark, that's the substance, that's the light. That's really this, the reality, the truth. And the darkness is merely the void. So don't be taken in by it. It appears to be overwhelming and almighty and powerful, but Hashem just gave permission so in order we should have the freedom of choice, in order that we should, we should strengthen ourselves and that we should be able to overcome overcome the darkness by realizing that it's nothing, there's no substance to it. So by us realizing that there's no substance to it and treating it that way, we are the microcosm. Whatever happens in our hearts and our lives really reflects and impacts the entire universe. So by us realizing the power of the godly soul and calling a spade a spade and putting the darkness in its place and realizing the darkness really has no substance, by that we also impact the whole universe that, and the forces of darkness and light in the universe, the forces of light are strengthened and magnified, become powerful once again and felt in this world. And then the forces of darkness shrivel and shrink and lose their power, lose their hold on this world. So whatever happens by us, if we empower the darkness and we're taken in by the darkness, overwhelmed by the darkness, and allow the darkness to work its, its wonders on us, then the world also becomes a very dark place. Godliness becomes concealed, and the, work, the world becomes a very dark place.
But the moment we put the darkness in its place and we overcome the darkness, then the world also, the light and the goodness and the wholesomeness in the world also become that much more powerful and the darkness is put in its place. He brings from the Torah that proves the point that he's making here in this chapter. After the sin of the spies, when the Jewish people refused to enter the land of Israel, they said that the enemy is stronger than him in the singular, referring to God himself. That God, even God Almighty himself does not have the ability to take us into the land that we, can, we can't conquer the 31 kings, uh, the Canaanites. So what happened? Moshe started yelling at them in anger. God said, Vayedabri spoke harshly with them, that I was going to lead you into the land of Israel, but because of your rebellion, you're going to die in this desert. I swear to you that no male over the age who left Egypt over the age of 20, even the age of 20 to 60, is going to see the land, the new land. You're going to die in this desert. The next thing we know, they forced themselves, they said, we're going to Israel. And Moshe says, please don't go. And they went, and they were killed, those who went anyway. They forced their way. So he asked, what happened? Nothing happened. What changed? Here, all of a sudden, they were convinced that it's impossible to conquer the land. Moshe yells at them. The next thing they're going, they're marching against Moshe's will. They're going into Israel. What changed? I thought you said it's impossible to conquer the land. What changed? And there was no miracle in the meantime. Because according to many commentaries, even the punishment of the spies themselves, the punishment didn't happen until later. They forced themselves to, to, to go to the land of Israel immediately. As soon as they heard from Moshe they're going to die in the desert, they immediately uh, went up, tried to force their way to the land of Israel without permission, and they were slaughtered. But the punishment of the miraculous punishment of the spies, the ten spies themselves, didn't happen until later. And even the opinion that holds that it did happen, it says a miracle happened. Their tongues um, stretched out and reached, reached their, uh, their belly button because they spoke Lashon Hara and then, then they died. But even according to that opinion, it was only um, the tongue stretched out, but they didn't die till much later, till a month later. So, but this story that they attempted to go to the land of Israel happened immediately. So when the Torah says, even though if you read the Torah chronologically, it says that they died, the spies died, and then it says that the Jewish people said we're going to go to the land, we're going to the land of Israel. But it's not chronologically in order because they didn't die, the spies didn't die according to all opinions, unanimously didn't die till later, a month later. So the story, this, when the Torah says they forced their way up, didn't happen after these verses. It's like a, um, um, a parenthesis that they died. And then the Torah goes back to the chronological order, what really happened, and that they forced their way. So when they, by the time they forced their way to the land of Israel, the Torah is saying, at that point, there was no miracle. Nothing changed. There was no dramatic miracle. What made them, what caused them to change their mind? Here, they did not believe. They believed it was impossible to go to the land of Israel. And the next thing you know it, they're forcing their way to go to the land of Israel. Even when Moshe says, don't go to the land of Israel. They were so confident that we can conquer. What happened? What changed? They had such a logical, powerful argument. It's impossible for us. Even God Almighty Himself can't even help us. Even though God took us out of Egypt, but there's no way we can conquer the land of Israel. And the next thing you know, it, they had a 180 degree transformation, and here they are, they're marching and trying to force their way to the land of Israel. What happened? What changed? The answer is 
that their skepticism and their doubt and their lack of faith and all the logical arguments and reasoning, there was really no substance to it. It was no substance. It was all, it was all in their mind. It was all delusion. It was all based on ego, on arrogance. It was castles and there was no reality to it. As certain as they were, they were so certain that they cried, we don't want to go to the land of Israel. It's impossible. And they thought that their feelings will never change. I'll never feel differently. I'm so certain of my feelings and my beliefs. Next thing you know, it's a 180 degree turnaround. They're so certain that we could go, even when Moshe told them, don't go. Because these feelings that we feel so certain of, and our skepticism, our lack of belief, that we're so confident, and, we're so, and we argue, and we, there's no substance to it. There's no reality to it. It's fueled by pure chutzpah and pure arrogance. That's all it is. There's no reality to it. The moment Moshe yelled at them that you're going to die in the desert, and he spoke very harshly to them, and they realized how low they had fallen, and they felt shattered, and they realized how ugly, spiritually ugly they've become. And they were disgusted with themselves. When their heart was broken and shattered into a thousand pieces, now all of a sudden, that sense of godliness suddenly emerged. Once that shell was cracked, and the inner was allowed to emerge and surface, suddenly they had a 180 degree turnaround. Now they were certain, of course we can go into the land of Israel, nothing can stop us. And they tried to force their way. Even when a person loses his faith, they lost their faith in God. They were certain that God does not have the power to bring them into the land of Israel. They lost their faith. After having experienced the miracle, to receive the Torah, all the miracles, they suddenly lost faith. I'm sorry, we don't believe God can be pulled this one up. Even in such a case, realize that this lack of faith has no substance to it. It's fueled by pure chutzpah. It's arrogance. That's all it is. There's no reality to it. And the moment you call a spade a spade, look yourself in the mirror and call yourself what you've become, a bum, a low life. And your heart is shattered and you, become, you feel disgusted by where you're at and what you've become. Your emotional state of being and your psychological state of being and your spiritual state of being. When your heart is broken to a thousand pieces, now, all of a sudden, you don't have to do anything else. All of a sudden, that inner beauty, that inner youthfulness and innocence and, the, and that relationship to God, suddenly you start feeling again that beautiful relationship you have with God and that faith and that trust it comes, comes bubbling to the surface. It was there all along. It never left you. But you created this persona, this false persona. As a result of this arrogance, you created this false, false persona, this false sense of self, which has nothing to do with you. And although you were certain, this is me, and this is the real me, and this is who I am, and I have to be truthful to myself, and I don't believe, and I can't, I can't believe, and it's a lie. The Torah looks you in the face and says, you're lying. You're a liar. It's, a, it's, 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 it's an illusion. It's not true. It's not the real you. you, don't, you deep down you have faith, and deep down you know the truth. 
and deep down you, 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 you feel love and deep down you feel connected and deep down you are connected. What you feel inside is 180 degrees, the exact opposite of the way you think you feel. So your conscious self, your it's just a false, it's just a false person. It's not real you. And worse than that, we actually deluded yourself that you don't believe in God. It's pure delusion. You can actually delude yourself that you don't believe in God. But there are no atheists in foxholes. The <laughs> moment of truth suddenly. You sober up very quickly and you discover, you rediscover that faith that never left you. You never lost that faith. It was a, you, you created this false person. But deep down, everyone knows this God. You know that every fiber of your being, every bone in your body, you know in your kishkes. And those feelings are alive and well and vibrant. But you just cover it up. When you crack through the shell and you break through the cover, when the arrogance shrivels up like a balloon, you prick the balloon and the, all the hot air <laughs> leaves and the balloon comes back to its real size instead of this overinflated sense of self, this over-exaggerated sense of self and this unjustified sense of self and suddenly you, you come back to the real size of the balloon. <laughs> now, now, now we can talk. Now you're down to earth. Now you're back to reality. You're down to reality, you're back to reality. Of course, of course we can go into the land of Israel. Nothing can stop us. Skepticism could be a damper. It could throw a lot of cold water on, on, uh, on, on things that are good. But skepticism sometimes is the antidote for the skeptic. You know, the skeptic is skeptical of everything except his own skepticism. When you, when you become skeptical of your own skepticism, it dampens that skepticism. So skepticism is a very powerful thing. So when you become skeptical of this of this comfort level that you've grown to and you've become so comfortable with yourself and so proud of yourself and so content and arrogant and smug, you throw in a little skepticism, throw in a little, and then suddenly it loses its power. Suddenly it shrivels. It shrivels up right before your eyes. This arrogance, this ego just shrivels up right before your eyes. So this is the antidote. Al Rebbe is a good doctor. He's giving us the antidote <laughs> to this very pernicious, pernicious condition apathy, timtum halev, clogging of the heart. The clot, stopping the blood flow. So he's helping us remove that clot. Don't argue with the clot. Don't, don't, don't break through, shatter it into a thousand pieces. When you shatter the clot into a thousand pieces, now suddenly a person who could hardly walk up the stairs because the heart was congested suddenly feels, feels, feels like a, a a 20-year-old once again. You can run, you can you feel alive. Before, every, you took 10 steps, you already had to slow down. You couldn't walk anymore. And then when you break through the clot and the blood circulates once again, you, 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 feel, you feel like a, a youngster. You, feel, you can run, you can jog. The same thing is true spiritually. When you have that clot and the blood stops circulating, you feel sluggish. You don't have the energy. You couldn't care less. You're not interested. I don't want to change, I don't want to grow, I don't want to move, I don't want to, I'm just... But the moment you, your heart is broken to a thousand pieces and you break through that clot, suddenly you feel youthful again, you feel alive. You can run, you can sprint. Now you're alive again. Now you've joined the living. Welcome back to life. Kabbalah and the Psychology of the Soul 
taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky.